0: You know, I was doing some research this week and came across an interesting, a, uh, interesting uh, story about the Statue of Liberty. Do you know the guy who designed the Statue of Liberty was trying to come up with, I mean, just try to put yourself in his shoes for a second. That's a lot of responsibility. Design something that will be the symbol of freedom for the nation that represents freedom to the world. That will be at the forefront of everyone coming in and they will see it. And so he's trying to pour into, okay, what's this going to look like? And he went through all these designs and all this research. And he'd come up with a basic uh, look that we have today of the Statue of Liberty, but he could not settle on the face. How do you design a face that is freedom, that is strength, that is everything that America represents to those under tyranny around the world? How do you design that, someone who is, that, that exudes strength and freedom and patience and endurance? And the conclusion from the most reliable sources we have, he didn't write it down in a journal, uh, but from what we can determine is what he came up with for the face of the Statue of Liberty was his mother, as he put her face there, because to him, that is what freedom was, that is what patience was, that is what strength was. And he wanted everyone to come in to see what he saw as he was raised and so he put her face there the statue of liberty representing his mom in that way you see moms are valued moms are important even jesus valued his own mother in an incredible way being the eldest son Uh, when joseph passed away the Uh, uh, responsibility of caring for Mary would fall on Jesus. He was the oldest son, which is why as he was being crucified on the cross, he took a moment in the midst of declaring salvation on the world, he took a moment to make sure his mom was taken care of. And he put that responsibility on John, the disciple. And And from that day forward until Mary died, John took care of her. Maybe that was why John lived so long. We believe John lived on into his 90s. He was caring for Jesus' mother. We don't really know. But Jesus cared for his mom. Jesus valued his mother. And for all moms, no matter what comparison creeps in or self-doubt or or the voiced opinions of others or even the assumed, unvoiced opinions of other people or the, the worry that you might be ruining your children. You don't have to raise your hand. I know you've had those thoughts. I've had those thoughts. I worry I'm ruining my kids. No matter any of those things, you you have to understand from what we see in Scripture, how it's explained and, and laid out for us, God values you. He chose you and designed you with your gifts, with your skills, with your abilities, and your experience. He chose you, and he gave those kids to you specifically for your influence. He didn't give them to somebody else. He gave them to you. You are valued by the almighty creator of everything. And today we're going to look at John chapter 6 and see a unique instance of the value that God places on people. Particularly people that some others don't necessarily value to the extent they should be. John chapter 6. We're starting a new series today called Bread and Water. John chapter 6 is little snippets of instances that have to do with bread and water, ultimately coming down to Jesus' teaching at the end of the chapter that he is the bread of life um, in uh, what he told some people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But here in John chapter 6, Jesus has been teaching, Jesus has been ministering for a little while, and uh, he goes to the far side of the Sea of Galilee to try to get away. He's just learned that his relative, John the Baptist, has been executed. And so he wants to get away for a little bit with his disciples and just have a moment where people aren't constantly in his face. But he's Jesus, and so people won't let him have that moment. John chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 1. If you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack there, it's on page 891. Uh, The scripture will also be on the screen. If you're watching online, it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, But if you are in the room, I do want you to know, if you do not have a Bible, just take the one there on the rack. It's yours. Take it. We've got a bunch back in a closet back there. Just take that one. It's yours. It's, it's, take it, all right? Just write your name in the front right now, and you can have it. We want you to have it. So John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, we get a glimpse here. The book of John was written by John the disciple the one who ends up taking care of Jesus' mother. John wrote this. And he gives us an interesting insight there. So he's with Jesus. He's he's one of the disciples there. He said, a large crowd followed Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But they didn't follow Jesus because they liked what he taught. They didn't follow Jesus necessarily because they were true believers. Look at what John said. They followed Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. They thought what he was doing was cool. And so they wanted to follow him and they wanted to see with their own eyes the cool stuff Jesus was doing. They wanted to see it. They'd heard about it. They'd heard other people do it. Maybe they saw it themselves. They wanted to see more of it. And so they followed after Jesus. But he didn't just let them come and, and, and watch the miracles. He would always teach them. He would always point them towards the kingdom of God. He would always point them towards the gospel. And so these people came, and Jesus knew they were coming. And he had great compassion on the people. Even though he was trying to have some alone time, and they showed up, he still had great compassion on them because he still wanted them to receive the gospel, he still wanted them to have the kingdom. And so they came and they approached him as he was there. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now this this was a sign, this this is how first century teachers taught. They wouldn't like today in class, the teacher gets up and stands up at the front of the class and all the students sit down. The teacher back then would sit down, and that was a sign, you're about to receive a teaching. And so that that he would sit down, and everybody would gather around him. And so the image we get here, uh, we, we see in the other Gospels. You know, this miracle we're about to read about, besides the resurrection, this is the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those guys who wrote those books, this is the only other one besides the resurrection that they all wrote about. And so this one's very important for that reason, and we're going to see why in just a minute. And so what we learn is Jesus sat down, the disciples gathered around him, and this crowd, this crowd of thousands gathered all around those disciples there on the hill. And so this is a massive gathering. And Jesus is sitting there, and he starts teaching. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting his eyes then Seeing a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, this is an interesting question. First off, we learn from the other three Gospels that Matthew, Mark, and Luke that tell about this happening, this experience, that Jesus had been teaching all day. The people showed up. They got there, and Jesus was there with his disciples. He saw them coming. It was morning time. Jesus taught all day long without taking you know, a lunch break. Just constantly just going, teaching, influencing, pointing people to the Lord. He wanted to make sure they were spiritually fed before they were physically fed. Uh, And so he taught all day long. And it gets to the end of the day, and Jesus turns to Philip. We don't hear a lot about Philip, but he turns to Philip, and he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, the reason he turns to Philip is that Philip was from Bethsaida, which is the closest town to this spot. And so anybody knows the places to eat, it's somebody who's from there. And so he turns to Philip and he says, Philip, where are we going to buy food for all these people? Now, what makes this so interesting is that Jesus puts the responsibility of feeding the people on the disciples. And we can see from the disciples' response, this isn't something that they normally did. They didn't normally feed all the people who came to Jesus. This seems like a unique deal here. It seems like what would normally happen, day would come, Jesus would heal, Jesus would preach and they would spread out and they would eat what they brought or they would dismiss and everybody would go into town and eat at first century Chick-fil-A. Whatever would happen, that's what typically went on and now Jesus is putting the onus on his disciples and saying, okay guys, how are we going to feed all these people? That's a big undertaking. I mean, if I'm Philip, first off, being singled out by Jesus in front of the other disciples and the whole crowd, like, what do you mean, how are we going to feed these people, Jesus? Like. There's a lot of people. There's no way we're going to feed these. Jesus, we can barely pay enough money to feed ourselves, and you want us to go feed these people? What are you thinking? Look at his response. Verse 6, we get an insight into Jesus. Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, this is, this is very important to what's going to, about to happen in a minute. Jesus asked the question already knowing what was going to happen. Jesus asked this question already knowing his plan. Philip didn't know the plan yet. The other disciples didn't know the plan yet. And Jesus asked this question. And Philip answered in verse 7. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little, like one bite. A denarius was one day's worth of work, the average day's worth of work for a day laborer. He says 200 days worth of work would not buy enough for everybody in the crowd to get one bite of bread, Jesus. Not even the regular bread, like... The, the cheapest bread, the bread that's on clearance at the store, like the bread that's going to go moldy at 3 p.m. if you don't eat it for lunch. He said, this isn't going to be enough to buy enough bread for everybody just to have a bite of that nastiness. And this is Philip's response to Jesus. Because he's responding to what seems to him, Philip, like hopelessness in Jesus' expectation. Jesus is placing this expectation on Philip and the disciples. You guys feed them. And to Philip, it seems like, Jesus, you're asking me to do the impossible. Feed the, we, we can't, Jesus. I've seen you heal blind people. I've seen you do all kinds of stuff. I have never seen you do this, what you're asking me to do. Now, we're about to read about him doing it. But at this point, he's never seen it before. And so Philip is, is, is really worried here. He's confused. He's, he's scared. He's embarrassed. And he says to Jesus, there's no way, because he feels like Jesus has put an unrealistic expectation on him. Now, when it comes to our own lives, other people's expectations on us can sometimes be incredibly debilitating, whether they voice that expectation or we just assume they have a certain expectation of us, and that begins to drive how we think about them. Because we think they expect us to accomplish something they never stated, but we just feel like they're saying it that way. We feel like that's their body language and their tone is communicating to us about that. And and that expectation becomes like this weight in the back of our mind that just consumes our every waking thought. Expectations can do great damage to us. Because that's a tool that the enemy uses to cripple our effectiveness for the kingdom. Either when we start living for other people's expectations, or we start living for the the unstated expectations we assume people have of us. Paul actually says in one of his letters, once I start living to serve those expectations of other people, I stop living to serve Jesus. And so these expectations that we, we think about what other people have for us are a detriment because we feel like they expect us to accomplish something all on our own, by ourselves. But the thing that Philip doesn't understand yet, and the disciples haven't grasped yet, and even today, almost 2,000 years later, many, most of us, all of us, me at the chief of that, don't often get it either. You see, because Jesus' expectations aren't debilitating. They're always hope-filled, not hopeless. Because Jesus never intends our efforts to be alone. He never intends us to accomplish what he expects by ourselves, even though we think it that way sometimes. Look at what happens. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, Andrew Now is one of my favorite disciples. Because every time we see Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. We're first introduced to Andrew, he's bringing his brother to Jesus. Here, he's bringing this little boy to Jesus. Now, the image also isn't that Andrew went out in the crowd and kind of arm wrestled this kid's lunch away from him and (laughs) took it to Jesus. It's almost as the way it's worded as though the boy came forward overhearing their conversation with his lunch and offering it up. And Andrew is saying, oh, well, here's this boy with his lunch and and the word for little boy here i mean it's not like a teenager who you know you can't feed them enough i mean it's just a little boy with a little boy's lunch he's he's got tiny he's got these little bitty rolls and these tiny little fish and that's his lunch for the day he says this is what we have and he brings him to jesus now even though we, we we hear in his statement great doubt what is this among so many I mean, he, said, he does the right thing, and he brings the boy to Jesus, but he expresses, you know, faithlessness in bringing him to Jesus. Jesus, here's this boy and his food, but you can't really do very much with what he's got. But even though he's doubtful, he still does the right thing, and he brings what they have to Jesus. He still does what Jesus expects of him, which is exactly what he expects of us today. We are to bring what we have to Jesus and let him take care of everything else. We're to bring what we have to Jesus and let him take care of everything else because Jesus doesn't expect you to work with what you have. Jesus works with what you have. He doesn't expect you to accomplish it all on your own without his help, without him doing the majority of the work. You bring what you have to Jesus and he takes care of it. Jesus will work with what you have. And this isn't just a New Testament idea. We see this in Old Testament scripture. Uh, there, there was a, an expectation put on this woman by a prophet, make me some food. And she said, all I had is this little food. Well, I'm going to make it for me and my kid, and we're going to die because it's all we have. And she feels like this prophet, this man of God, is coming and pushing, putting this expectation on them. No, you give me what you had for you. And she cooked it for him, and she had more than enough, not just for her son for that day, but for the duration of the famine in the land. She brought what she had, because the question from the prophet actually wasn't, what are you about to do with what's, what you have? Uh, she comes and uh, he says, I want you to do this, and she goes, we don't have very much, and his question to her was, what do you have in your house? What do you have that God can do something with? And That's the idea with Andrew bringing this boy's lunch to Jesus, it's, it's what do we have that God can do something with? You say, I don't have anything for God to do something with. Well, what you do have, he gave to you. He gave it to you so he could do something with it. Whatever gift it is, whatever skill it is, whatever resource it is, yeah, I don't have very much money. Yeah, but Jesus can do a lot with the very little. Jesus can do a lot with nothing. He created the universe from nothing. They say it in big theological circles, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created everything that we see he created. And here you are sitting here in these green pews because God created you. God can do so much, even if you feel like it's not very much, which is what Andrew expressed in bringing that kid's lunch to him. Here it is. I know it's not very much. I know it's probably not going to be able to do much, but he still brought it to Jesus, which is what he wants you to do. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to the Father. see what he can do even this morning in our own house if you're a parent of young children I swear the toy companies put batteries in every toy just so that you can change the batteries every other day but even this morning uh, Ethan our youngest there was a toy that we had that wasn't working and he goes daddy it needs batteries and normally what we'll do if the doors are open to my toolbox he'll run and get these little this little uh, screwdriver set here, And it's got you know all these little screw heads, and it's got a tiny little screwdriver deal. You can pop the head in and screw it in, and it's got a couple little, these are, don't, weren't in here, but sometimes those toys have really tiny screw heads, and so I put these in here just because sometimes you need tinier screwdrivers. And you got to unscrew it, and open it, put the batteries, and, and he came to me with the question because he knew I had the know-how, and he knew I had the resources, and he knew I had the tools to accomplish it. He had the toy that wasn't working, and he brought it to his father to get it to work. And before we were done, Mickey Mouse was dancing on the floor. When we have an issue, our responsibility isn't to try to fix it ourselves. It's to bring it to the father. Because he has the tools, he has the resources, and he has the power to fix it to take care of it, to do everything that needs to be done, even if in your mind you can't conceive how how God will be able to fix it, he can do it. He can do it. You may have never thought about what's about to happen, but he can take care of it just as we're about to see. Philip and Andrew, even though they're there and he asked Philip the question, Andrew brings the little kid with his lunch, they had no idea what Jesus was about to do. But Andrew still brought their resources to the Father. To Jesus, he brings it to Jesus, and Jesus, having seen his expectation fulfilled, just bring it to me. Begins the process. Verse ten. Jesus said, "Have the people sit down." Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Now this is also interesting. The men sat. It doesn't mean the women and children all were standing. Stood up for the rest of the time, uh, but in first century thinking, they only counted the men. We learn from the other gospels that there were 5,000 men in addition to the women and children that were there. So I mean it could have been upwards of 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people in this crowd, huge crowd. But they only counted the men. That's important for something in just a second. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted you notice in those two verses we don't see when the miracle happens we don't really know what happens we don't know as jesus is is, is you know praying the blessing over the food is he tearing the fish and the bread and it's just exploding out of him or, or as he hands it out and the disciples are taking the little pieces they have to just keep repeating itself in the dish that they're serving we don't know where the miracle happens we don't know and that's probably a good thing because as human beings what we tend to do is when we see something God when we see God do something incredible or miraculous we want to turn it into a formula and say we got to do it in the exact same way in order to repeat the the success of last time and the success of last time becomes our limit for what God needs to do next And so we don't know the exact words Jesus said. We don't know the exact hand motions that he did in handing it out. We don't know. All that we know is they brought what they had to Jesus, and the miracle happened. And so Jesus takes this, hands it to the disciples. They go, and they distribute this to everybody. Uh, Look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, so everyone was filled to bursting, Thanksgiving, unbutton your pants, so full. That they, they, everyone had eaten their fill. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So for being a part of the miracle, he gave each of the 12 disciples a doggy bag to take with them as a remembrance of the miracle they had just been a part of. They had helped distribute the, the miracle And they collected what was left over, the abundance of the miracle, because they took part in it. And Jesus had them collect all of this. But I want to go back for a second and remind you that when Andrew brought the food to Jesus, he kind of belittled what they had. He made it sound not so good. He made it sound less than what could be. You ever do that? You ever have somebody give you a compliment and you play it off? You know, oh, yeah, thank you. But, you know, really what is going on is such and such. Thank you, Brio. Thank you. the only one nodding your head. I'm with you. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like that idea is he brought it to Jesus, but then he played it down like this isn't very much. But in doing that, he's playing down Jesus' power. He's belittling Jesus' power in belittling what he has. And so. You never need, or Jesus never thinks that what you have is too little for him to do something big with. Jesus never thinks that what you have is too little for him to do something big with because think about it everything you have, he gave you. He gave you everything you need. And so if you think it's too little, then you think that he didn't give you enough. That he, he somehow missed the checklist in distributing gifts and resources and everything to people, and he gave you less than somebody else. Maybe he gave you less because he can do more with your less than he can do with somebody else's more. Maybe they need more because they're not as strong as you are. And so he, did, he knew what he was doing in distributing everything. And he can do big things with what he gave you. So we need to never think that what he gave us is too small, whether it be a giftedness, whether it be... Uh, a, a skill or ability or not being able to, to latch on to something that somebody else can grab on faster or not having enough money as somebody else or not, not climbing the, the uh, uh, ladder at our job fast enough or as somebody else is or that somebody else got the promotion that you wanted and that means they have something that you don't have. That's not the design. That's not the intention. That's not what God has. Maybe God didn't want you to have that job or promotion or whatever, because he has you in a place that the people around you, right where you're at, need Jesus, the Jesus you have. It's not about what you deserve. It's not about getting more money. It's because you would be better suited where you are in giving Jesus to those around you. Maybe that's the reason you're there. Maybe that's the reason he has allowed you to stay where you are, because he needs you there. He specifically designed you He handcrafted you with everything you've got to serve a specific purpose that only you can serve. That's why you're different than everybody else. I don't know if you've noticed, but everybody in the world is different. Nobody thinks like you think. I know you wish that everybody thought like you thought and the world would be a better place, but that's not the way it is. Everybody's got their own thoughts. Everybody's got their own design. Everybody's got their own gifts because we can be strategically placed in all these different roles and all these different places to serve a a common purpose of God's glory and God's kingdom if we fulfill the reason we were designed the way we were. God didn't give you somebody else's personality. Stop trying to imitate it. Stop it. Be who God made you to be. Using the gifts God gave you use for his purpose and his glory for that very reason. But I want you to focus for a second. This is is the point right here. You notice back up, what was it, verse, where was it, verse 6. He knew what he was going to do. So before he asked the question to Philip, where are we to buy bread, he knew what he was going to do. To do Before Jesus even asked the question, he knew the boy was in the crowd who had the lunch that was going to provide the miracle. The the most famous miracle outside of the resurrection in all of the New Testament. Because all four gospel writers wrote about it. I can almost picture Jesus as he's teaching sitting there on on the hill, seeing the the little boy come up in the crowd and thinking to himself, Oh, I know what the... (laughs) There he is. Here he comes. I can see that lunchbox, thinking to himself, they have no idea what's about to go down. It's going to blow all their minds, so much so that it's going to be in the Scripture, in all four Gospels, in a way that would just change everybody's perspective. And that kid comes up, and Jesus, has, Jesus had, had, had provided the opportunity for that little boy to have that lunch, and he came, and he brought it. But what strikes me is that even in mentioning the boy, In mentioning his lunch none of the four gospel writers included the boy in the count of the people who were there they didn't count him they get 5,000 men the one who made the miracle possible was discounted not just by society and culture but by the guys who wrote the gospel by the guys who distributed the miracle They did not count him in the count. They didn't think he was worthy of being counted by their action. They wouldn't have communicated that or said that, but culture had so infused them that they just did not include him in the count. But Jesus counted the boy worthy. Jesus counted the boy valuable. That's why Jesus gave the boy this food so he would be a key component to the miracle even knowing that no one was going to count the boy, even knowing that people were going to discount the boy, Jesus discounts no one. Jesus sees everyone. No matter anyone else's expectations or opinions or words or decisions or comparisons about you, Jesus loves you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is for you. Because Jesus values you. Jesus values you. And the thing about that is, you don't have to earn your value. You don't have to prove your worth to Jesus. Because before you even had a chance to try to prove your worth, he died in your place on the cross. Before you were born, before you were thought about, before your great-great-great-great-grandparents were even thought about, He valued you so much to come and die in your place. Paul said it in the way that we love him because he first loved us. We can't prove, we can't live enough to prove how much value he's placed in us because he placed value in us before we had a chance to prove anything. Before we had a chance to prove anything. He values us. In coming and dying. He valued us. Honestly, he valued us in creating us. Knowing beforehand, knowing beforehand we were going to sin. He still valued us enough to create us anyway. Knowing we were going to sin the way we sin already. Knowing that we were going to think thoughts that we were going to think. Knowing uh, people in the world, knowing that some of the people in the world were going to reject him. He chose to create them anyway. To give them the opportunity to believe. Even if they reject him, he valued them enough to create them. And he values you in the same way. He created you, he died for you, he rose for you. And so when those little thoughts come and whisper in your mind that maybe it's somebody else has whispered to you in your past, maybe it's circumstances, maybe maybe it's even decisions you have made in your past that you still think about and are embarrassed about, And regret he chose you anyway he values you anyway and he forgave that thing that you keep bringing up maybe it's it's not you bringing it up it's the enemy bringing it up trying to belittle you trying to discount you but just like this little boy with his lunch if we would simply bring it to Jesus bring it to Jesus and let him take care of everything else it will change everything. It will change everything. If we bring it to Jesus and surrender it to Him and offload it from us on to Him, what Jesus' own words were take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. He says, I will take it for you. I will take all the heavy stuff. I will take the worries. I will take the anxiety. I will take the pressure. I will take what what everyone else is placing on you, Jesus. I will take it away from you. Give it to me. Trust in me. Have faith that I will take care of all of your needs. You can't control other people and what they think. You can't control what somebody said to you 25 years ago. You can't control it. You can't control the comparison that the enemy puts in your brain about certain things that you do and your parents did and your in-laws did and your neighbors are doing and the other person in town is doing and the other person in church is doing or what that person keeps posting on Instagram that you're not posting on Instagram because you don't have the same life. You can't control any of that. But what you can control is what you bring to Jesus. It's what you bring to Jesus. And understand full well, he values you. He equipped you and handmade you and gave you everything you had. And he can do with what you bring to him something you never imagined possible. Maybe a miracle in the same vein as feeding far more than 5,000 people. Maybe you'll never see it coming. But you have to do what Andrew did and simply bring it to Jesus. So the question for you today will you believe that that jesus proved your worth by creating you as you are by dying for you and raising for your eternal life will you believe that today will you believe it and then will you walk in your worth today no matter what somebody else says no matter what the world says no matter what the enemy whispers in your brain Will you walk in your worth? Because your worth isn't dependent upon what you do. Your, work is de- your worth is dependent upon what Jesus already did. He already did it. He died for you. Walk in it. In my, in my, in my small group, we've been talking for, for weeks about the Apostle Paul and how bold he was. It just blows my mind. It's because I think Paul understood his worth. Even though people were trying to kill him, even though people were trying to stone him to death, even though he was on the hit list of every single town he walked into and ultimately got his head cut off for it, even though he was in the midst of all of that, he understood his worth, and his worth was not dependent upon what other people thought about him. His worth was dependent upon what Jesus did for him. And he became what we believe to be the greatest missionary who ever lived. And none of us would be sitting here today if it weren't for his testimony. Jesus can do that with you just as much as he can do it with him. Because it's the same Jesus. Same Jesus. Same Holy Spirit. They haven't changed. They're the same. Will you embrace your worth today and walk in it this week?